to Revelation chapter 8. Today we're talking about the seven trumpets and the relation to Islam. You may be aware that one of the most significant obstacles to Christ's second coming being soon is the billion Muslims of the world. In other words, what are the two, two objects that Christ's coming is hinged on in Scripture? One is this gospel going to every kindred and nation, tongue, and people. And the other is the ripening of God's people. The first one of those involves reaching Islam. And to get to my main point before I prove it, the seven trumpets of Revelation 8 through 11 provide a very useful tool in reaching the Muslim mind. In one hour, we can only get through so much of the seven trumpets, but I want to just help you observe some things to begin with. First of all, notice verse 2, and I saw. Revelation 8, verse 2. And I saw, it's a typical phrase used in Revelation to introduce a new line of prophecy. That is, Revelation 8.1 could have gone or should have gone with the section called the seven seals. Um, Revelation 8.2 introduces a new section, the seven trumpets. Verse 3, and I saw another angel, that's besides the seven with the trumpets. I saw another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. I'm just going to tell you for the sake of time that this angel is Jesus. He is the one that offers up our prayers. He offers them up before the throne to his Father. And what are the prayers mixed with in this passage? They're mixed with the incense, that is the incense, the fragrance of the merits of Christ's life mixed with our prayers. Maybe you recall, I think it was in this class, when we studied Revelation 4 and 5, we noted that there are beings there, the 24 elders, that have vials full of the prayers. What do they do with prayers? Angels help answer prayers. The work of angels is to answer prayers. That's what they do in the book of Daniel. That's what they do in the book of Revelation. That's what they do elsewhere in the Bible. But what does Jesus do with prayers? He mixes them with his righteousness and offers them up. Can you notice, or can you see in verse 3, that this is the inception or the beginning of Christ's ministry in the heavenly sanctuary? What phrase in that verse gives you a hint that this is the beginning? Incense was given to him. That is, before it's given to him, he doesn't have it. Then it says that he should offer it with the prayers of, what is the word? All the saints. Here we have the work of Jesus beginning and all of the prayers of saints are going to be mixed with his righteousness. Verse 4, 
and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angels. What does it say? It's from his hand. Now this is an interesting point. You might remember in the Old Testament, maybe you've read it there, but it describes about it describes Jesus and it describes beam, beams coming out of his hands. And then it says, there is the hiding of his... Do you know the word that's used? It says, there is the hiding of his power. There is the hiding of his power. That is, the power that is... The power of his atonement is, is in the sacrifice that was made. And what is in his hands? The scars or the emblems of that sacrifice is made. Here the incense is ascending from the hands of the angel up before God. Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar. This is then, or in other words, afterwards. The angel is offering up prayers. What prayers is he offering up? The prayers of all saints. Then he takes coals from off the altar, he puts them into the censer, and he throws it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. You might remember that we noticed this phrase earlier when we said Revelation 5. That this marks the end of earth's history in the... In Revelation 5, Revelation 11, Revelation 8 here, Revelation 16, uh, Revelation 19. Here you have the very last thing in earth's history. I really would like to spend more time with you on these six verses, but I'm just going to tell you what they mean and leave it to you to read that handout for those who are listening to the audio verse to find it on the website. These six verses are a parenthetical prophecy about Christ ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. They're placed in such a way that we can know when they happen. They happen during the same period of time as the seven trumpets. That is, the seven trumpets are introduced. Then we have Christ's ministry presented, including its close with the throwing down of the censer. And then we have the thunder and lightnings and earthquake that mark the end of the seven last plagues. And then we have the seven trumpets introduced again. Let me draw that as a little graph for those of you who are visual oriented. Which six verses are you referring to? Revelation 8 verses 2 through 6. It's really five verses. When I talk about parenthetical prophecies... I'm talking about a prophecy of something that can't be seen. Have we spoken about this in this class, parenthetical prophecies? In Daniel. I'm speaking about a prophecy of something that can't be seen. Something like Christ's intercession. Or something like the... Um, oh, I'm thinking now the sealing process. The sealing process is going on here on earth, but we can't see it. The opening up of the book of Daniel happens here on earth, but we can't see it. They aren't really political events, but we can find out when in earth's history they happen by where these prophecies are found when they're injected in the middle of prophecies about otherwise historical events. So we have the seven seals, one through seven, and in between six and seven, we have the parenthetical prophecy of the sealing. 
that tells me that the ceiling is going to be in Earth's history contemporary with the last events with the second coming. We have the Revelation 10 is the Advent movement. It's found between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. What does that tell me? That tells me that the Advent movement is, or that picture of the opening of the book of Daniel is going to happen in the time frame of the sixth or seventh trumpet. And here in Revelation chapter 8, we have the seven trumpets introduced in verse 2, and then they're mentioned again in verse 6. And in the verses in between, we have the picture of Christ's ministration in the heavenly sanctuary, his intercession. And at the very end of the picture of intercession is an element that's the very same as the end of the seventh trumpet. So that by comparing those two elements, they end the same and they start the same. We can know that when does Christ's ministration occur? It's parallel in time to the pouring out of the seven trumpets. I feel like that was more complex than I intended it to be. And I guess I'm just going to tr try to show you one more moment in Scripture and then go on, because this isn't the main point for today. But look at Revelation chapter 8, and look at verse 1. Excuse me, verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Look at verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The seven trumpets are introduced twice. They're introduced in verse 2. They're introduced in verse 6. There's one observation. Now look at the end of verse 5. And there were noises, thunderings, and an earthquake. Now look at chapter 11 and verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, and look down to verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake, and it adds great hail. These two observations, when you put them together, say that Christ's intercession starts with the seven trumpets. You have the seven seals in verse 2 and in verse 6. And his intercession ends with the lightnings and thunder and earthquakes of verse 6 and of 11.19. If they start the same time and they end the same time, they cover the same period of time. It might not be clear, but it's not worth one minute longer than I've given it. So we're moving on. Notice in Revelation chapter 8, verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. Notice verse 8. And the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And notice verse 10. 
And the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. Notice verse 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck. What I'd like you to observe is that the first four trumpets take a total of six verses. Do you see that in verses 7 through 12? Now compare that to chapter 9. How many verses are in chapter 9? 21. There's 21. Chapter 9 is the, is the fifth and sixth trumpets. If I could just put that in a graph so you can see it. The first four trumpets take six verses. The next two trumpets take 21 verses. That is, the first four trumpets take an average of one and a half verses each. And the next two take an average of 10 verses each. Which, according to the volume of attention in Revelation, are the more important trumpets? Do you follow the, the point I'm trying to make? So I'm going to tell you what these first four trumpets represent. I'm just going to tell you for the sake of time and then move right on to the six ones. Rome, which was described in Daniel as rising from the ashes of Greece... Rome was described also in Daniel as breaking up into ten, ten kingdoms. Remember those ten horns? These first four trumpets describe the fall of Rome from a single entity into a collection of barbaric um, tribes that eventually became the European power. The first four trumpets describe the breakup of Western Rome. The breakup of Western Rome occurred by a simple series of events. There was a man named Alaric, who was the head of the Visigoths, who felt impelled to attack Rome. There was a man named Genseric, the head of the Vandals, that likewise felt that he had a divine commission to attack Rome. There was a man, I've never heard anyone pronounce that name, so I made up my own pronunciation, a Dwasser who was the head of the Heruli that also attacked Rome, and he was the first one to succeed in overthrowing the Western Roman government and set himself up as the king of Rome. In other words, when Odoacer came into Rome, he established himself. And then there was a man... Attila, the Hun, who had more to do with these other three than might, you might guess. The short version of the history is that Attila the Hun was making um, a name for himself up here in the Baltic area, and as he was growing in his dominions, other tribal leaders, other tribes, to get out of his way, migrated south. Those included Alaric's people, Genseric's people, Dwasser's people. As they migrated south from that big Baltic land, they ended up settling in what we call Europe and North Africa. 
But Europe and North Africa belonged to the Roman Empire. And so they began to displace as they had conflict with Rome. It is such interesting history, I feel like telling it to you. But you're going to have to read it. But maybe I should give you a few hints that will help you as you're reading through the thing. You'll find in Revelation 8 a number of references to the term one-third. And that's because Constantine divided up the empire into three parts. They were known as Eastern Rome, Western Rome, and Illyricum. But you don't hear much about Illyricum. That's because Eastern Rome was so afraid of Alaric that they made him, they gave him the title of being the head Roman general over Illyricum. I don't know how to illustrate that to you. It would be as if Mexico invaded America and we were so scared of them, we made the Mexican dictator, we gave him the title of being the president of the Western United States. I'm just trying to illustrate for you what was involved. And ever after that, that area was under, well anyway, the thirds are a reference to one of these three divisions of the Roman Empire being attacked or otherwise troubled. There are a number of symbols used in Revelation 8 that are worthy of our notice. Um, hail is used. Hail is not too hard to understand if we understand that waters represent peoples. Here you have a storm of people. It makes sense. It'd be a storm from the north. Um, where the, where, was Alaric from the north? He was, and that first trumpet involves hail mingled with fire and blood, and that just well describes what he did. The story of Genseric is interesting because it describes a mountain being thrown into the sea. A mountain being thrown down is a metaphor borrowed from Jeremiah 51. In Jeremiah 51, Babylon is a burning mountain that is thrown down. Mm -hmm. 51. And in the second trumpet, here a burning mountain is thrown into the sea. What happened with Genseric? Genseric, at the head of a fleet of ships, ransacked the Mediterranean coasts. In an effort to uproot him, the Roman Empire, the various parts of the Roman Empire united to create a tremendous fleet, a fleet of more than 1,000 fighting vessels. I've never, I've never found any reference to a fleet that size anywhere else in history. They brought those 1,000 vessels down to the Vandals' homeland, maybe a tit-for-tat, and they demanded an unconditional surrender. Genseric asked that they would give him a day to think about it. Maybe they didn't want to fight, so they gave him the day to think. During that night, he loaded up barges 
and silently had them pushed out full of combustible materials among the thousand ship fleet that was all sitting there moored together. He lit the combustibles while the wind was blowing strong and burned the entire fleet. That's the second trumpet. In the third trumpet, you have an element, and understanding this element is helpful. In this element, you have a you have sun, moon, and stars. Actually, I, up here, I got the third and fourth trumpets in backwards order. I'm sorry about that. Attila is the third, and Odoacer is the fourth. So let me go to the th real third one, Attila. In the third one, you have a falling star, and the star lands on the fountains of water. The third. I wrote it wrong. I'm sorry. Um, Attila, what do we mean he landed in the fountains of water? It's this issue up here. Attila, by attacking and landing where all these barbaric tribes were, ended up poisoning them, making them bitter. What is the word used in Revelation 8? It's wormwood. These bitter nations being displaced ended up carrying their bitterness down in, into Europe. But what about this term, a falling star? In prophecy, Adventists are accustomed, based on Revelation 1, to refer to stars as messengers. Go ahead. What, what's the point? No, 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 no. I keep. Okay. No problem. Um, we're accustomed to thinking of stars as messengers because of Revelation 1. But there is another way stars are used in symbolic prophecy. What did the stars represent in the prophecy of Joseph? They're, his brothers, which were the heads of tribes. Tribal leaders in the prophecy of Joseph were referred to as stars. What was Attila? He was a tribal leader. And he was a tribal, tribal leader that, much like a falling star, had a very short but significant career. He fell, he burned, he was gone, he died. It wasn't short like in months, but it, was, it wasn't so many years. Um, then in that fourth trumpet, Adwasser, he's the one that actually settled in Western Rome. And it's from the fourth trumpet that most historians date the end of Western Rome because he removed the emperor the consul, that is the emperor's authority, the emperor wasn't there, the emperor was in the east, but he removed the emperor's authority, the authority of the consul. You might ask, what's a consul? That was the head of one of those three divisions. There was an eastern and western consul. And he removed the authority of the senate. And how, is it, how, is, how are these things represented there in the fourth trumpet? A third of the sun, a third of the moon and a third of the stars were darkened. That is, referring back to Joseph's dream, you had the patriarchal government represented by the father, the mother, and the sons. Well, what was the equivalent in the government of Rome? It was the emperor, the consul, and the senate. That's the closest equivalent you had in the Roman government to the patriarchal government of Joseph's family. And the authority of that portion of the government was destroyed 
in under the reign of Adwasser. All right, I'm satisfied with that um, if you end up reading the rest. Let's look at the last verse of chapter 8. And I looked and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Do we even find out from the beginning that these trumpets are more significant in their worldwide impact than the first? We do find out. If I could describe for you in, in short, the first two trumpets introduce Islam and gunpowder. Have those two world developments had an impact on everything? They dominate the news today. They dominated the news 100 years ago. They dominated the news 300 years ago. In fact, since they have risen, they have dominated the news ever since. Let's look at Revelation 9, verse 1. And then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. Now, this is the second time we've seen a falling star. The first one was Attila, and now we have another one. I'm going to tell you it's Muhammad. Muhammad is so fitly described as a falling star because not only was he the head of a tribe, he was the head of, well, excuse me, he was a messenger. What do they say about, what's the theme of Islam? There is one God, Allah, and Muhammad is his, that's it. Prophet or messenger is the same thing translated into English. To him was given the key to the bottomless pit. Now, some people have noticed in verse 1 that he's a star fallen from heaven. And you will find men who will advocate that Muhammad began as a true prophet and degenerated into a false one. I want to suggest that you shouldn't draw that from that verse. Because where does Attila fall from? Yeah, the very same place. That is, you have here a description of, of power and authority. The angel that talked to Muhammad, you said? I will tell you why I believe it's Muhammad himself. Let's look. Look at verse 2. And he opened the bottomless pit... And smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. Then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth. So light in the Bible is used to refer to, in some cases, truth and righteousness. But in chapter 8, it was referring to the authority of the governmental luminaries. In other words, if Joseph's dad is a son, then what's light? It's authority. So what, what did Genesis say about the sun? The sun rules by the day, the moon and the stars rule by night. 
these lights were connected with authority as early as you get in Genesis. And here you have the authority of Rome is compromised by the work of, of Muhammad and his bands. That certainly is what happened. I don't. In Genesis, you have the sun, moon, and stars, and they're given to rule. That's what it says in Genesis. One rules the day, the others rule the night. Light there doesn't represent truth. It represents authority. And that's the same thing we find in chapter 8. The covering up for a third of the sun and the moon and the stars represented a blighting of, not truth, but a blighting of authority. And now we have the authority of a large part of the Middle East and eventually of Rome is being clouded over and being taken over by Islam. And what's rising out of this cloud? Locusts. Locusts are so interesting. We've learned long ago that a beast about prophecy represents a nation. But we observed that a horse was used to represent a kingdom that's not of this world. And now we have locusts. You know, locusts are described in Proverbs 31 as one of those four things that are very small and yet very wise. What's very wise about locusts in Proverbs 31? Though they have no ruler or overseer, they go forth by bands. That is, they're organized without an overall leader. That perfectly describes the bands of Islam prior to the fifth trumpet. Did they work together? They had tremendous power, tremendous growth, overtaking large parts of the world, but there was no caliph that was over them all. That was reserved for a later time. It says, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. When it says, like the scorpions of the earth, we can find more about that further down in this same chapter. Look at verse 10. They had tails, what does it say? Like scorpions, and there were stings in their tails. Their power was to hurt men five months, and they had as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he has the name Apollyon. Those are both words for destroyer. Their sting is in their tails. What's a tail represent in Bible prophecy? I say we want to know because this isn't the last time we're going to find a tail in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 12, you have a dragon in the sky, and what does it do with its tail? It takes a third of the stars. Turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9. This is the primary passage, other than my study of the Quran itself, why I cannot buy the idea that Muhammad ever was a true prophet. Isaiah 9 and verses 15 and 16. The elder and honorable, he is the head. 
the prophet who teaches, what does it say? Lies. Lies. He is the tail. For the leaders of this people cause them to err, and those who are led by them are, what's it say? Destroyed. Destroyed. What does Apollyon mean? Destroyer. The prophet that teaches lies, he is the tail. And what about these locusts? They have tails like like scorpions. Isaiah 9 presents the picture of a false prophet whose false teachings have spread all over, all over. But you might be wondering now, how in the world does this prophecy help us reach Islam if it points out that Muhammad is a false prophet? Turn back to Revelation 9, and I want to point out to you the key verse to bring out for Islam. I wouldn't bring out those verses anytime sooner at the beginning and trying to reach a Muslim brother or sister. Revelation chapter 9, and looking at verse 20. But the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands that they should not worship, what does it say? Demons and idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their, or their thefts. According to these verses, what was the purpose of the, of the Islam plaguing of Rome? What was God attempting to do? He was trying to make them repent, exactly. And he was trying to bring them to repentance for particular sins. What kind of sins? Idol worship and idolatry and spiritualism. Spiritualism, idolatry, and idol worship. Do you know that Islam had a purpose in God's plan? Islam had a purpose. Islam was raised up to punish the Roman church for spiritualism, for idolatry, for immorality. Does Islam still hold values against those things? Islam still despises those things, immorality and idolatry in particular. I don't know if you know this, because today Islam is viewed as being very anti-Jewish. But that is such a faulty view of history. Many times in history, Islam has been the savior of the Jews. The Jews were heavily persecuted under the Roman Catholic system. Turkey many times became a haven for Jews being banished from various parts of Europe and other Catholic dominions. Matter of fact, at one point, the head of Turkey sent the Turkish army to, excuse me, the Turkish navy to go pick up Jews that were being banished from the shore so that they could have a safe passage back to Turkey. Jews play leading parts in the government today in Iran. 
Jews lived a very peaceable and happy life in Spain prior to the ousting of the Muslim Moors by the Catholics in that country. Then the Jews were disenfranchised, their property stolen, and many of them killed. The Jews did just fine in Baghdad during the Middle Ages, where they had high positions in government underneath Muslim leaders. Why am I bringing this up? Because Judaism was neither idolatrous nor immoral. And what was it that Islam was raised up to destroy? Idolatry and immorality. In fact, if you could draw as a picture, and a picture of this sort, when it's well done, is a, a powerful visual aid in speaking to Islam. Rome, which began here in Italy, began to grow in its power. And Rome was very greedy for, for growth. What stopped Rome from growing on this side? It was Islam under the Moors. What stopped Rome from growing on this side? It was the Muslims of Northern Africa. What stopped Rome on this side? The Muslims of Arabia. What stopped Rome from even, this is history that's not as well known, but England nearly became a Muslim nation. King John was ready to unite with a pact with the Moors to avoid aggression from the Roman Catholic Church. That never happened. But my point is that Islam formed a crescent. Is that an important word to Muslims? Islam formed a crescent that contained the Roman apostasy and kept it from growing and in fact, Islam was used of God to spare the Reformation more than one time. That is, when the Catholic Church was ready to pounce on the reformers in Germany and to smother the Reformation, several times when they were ready to make their big move, suddenly the Turks or the Saracens would show up attacking the frontiers, and to protect themselves, they'd have to turn their en energies down that direction. Islam has been used by God. Look at verse 4. It says, They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree. But only those men who do not have the seal of God in their foreheads. That was chapter 9, verse 4. Islam was raised up to contain an apostasy of another sort. What kind? The apostasy of Sunday worship. So where was Sabbath-keeping preserved? Sabbath-keeping was preserved for the longest outside of these bonds of Islam, south of this border in Abyssinia, 
among the Egyptians. It was preserved that way. East of this border among the Indians, also among the Syrians, and of course by the Jews that were in all these places. How did Islam treat Sabbath keepers? The evidence is that Islam was kind to Sabbath keepers. In fact, the Quran speaks highly of Sabbath keeping. In fact, the Quran teaches that the reason there are baboons in Arabia is that God cursed the people who weren't keeping Sabbath sufficiently and turned them into baboons. The fact that Islam has a purpose, does that mean that Muhammad was a true prophet? No, but God seems to have used men that understood a purpose in their life to accomplish a purpose that was for his ends and for his means. Did he do that in the Old Testament? You remember Pharaoh Necho, who tried his best to dissuade the head of Judah, the king of Judah, from coming out to fight with him. He wasn't able to dissuade him, so what happened to the king of Judah? He was killed. Revelation chapter 9 has two time prophecies. If there's anything that's fun for speculative theologians, it's the reinterpretation of the seven trumpets. And I'd like to just inoculate you some against that kind of habit. What do I mean by the reinterpretation? I mean taking these prophecies that were fulfilled way in the past and putting them in the future, maybe a good first step would to tell you how they were fulfilled in the past. The sixth trumpet says that they tormented men for five months. And that during this time, they... Um, men would want to die, but they would not be able to die. It's very apparent that we're talking about the... Now, we talk about these men dying and wanting to die. We're in figurative language. Do we have any precedent in the book of Daniel for speaking about humans as figures... In prophecy. You remember Daniel 7? The lion was made to stand on its feet like a man, and a man's heart is given to it. And then that little horn. Yeah. Man is used in Daniel 7 in connection with beasts. And I want to suggest to you that here you have a nation that wanted to wanted to surrender, wanted to, to cease, con to, to have an end to its conflict, and could not have an end. That is the Roman government. Five months, how much time is that in prophetic time? That's 150 years. From the time that Islam first made an attack on Rome, which was July 27, 1299. 150 years bring us to the year 1459. 
What happened in 1459? That's 1299 and 1459. That was the fall of Constantinople. That is the fall of Eastern Rome. Where did Western Rome cease to exist? Well, that was in the first four trumpets from the barbarian tribes. But what brought an end to the emperor himself always resided in the east? That was Islam in the fifth trumpet. Then you have another prophecy in the sixth trumpet. It's a prophecy for 391 years and 15 days. How is it worded? It's worded a year and a month and a day and an hour. Let's look at that. Look at verse 14. Saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. What are these four angels? These are four more heads of tribes. They're called the caliphates. I really don't know how to pronounce that word either. C-A-L-A-P-H-A-T-E-S. who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, a day, a month, and a year were released to kill a third part of mankind. Well, which third of the Roman Empire did they destroy? It was the Western. Now the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. New King James. King James, was it say, 200,000, thousand? Um, as far as I can tell, there has never been a time in Earth's history when there has been an army of 200 million soldiers. I think I'm fairly confident that there never has been because that would have been, I mean, up to the year 1900, that would have amounted to something like 30% of the, well, more like 45% of the male population of the world. But it's a perfectly legitimate number for the armies that fought under Islam during the period of 391 years and 15 days for the Ottoman Empire. Let me say that thought again in a backwards way. Why am I sure that, that this is prophetic time? Because no army could have been raised in a, that yeah, no army of that size ever existed at one time. But they did exist over that period of time. Now, futurists, they envisioned an army that size in the future. Just so you know, there aren't that many males in the whole United States of America. In fact, in the United States and Canada combined. And if you want to talk about males of fighting age, it wouldn't be in Mexico, the United States, America, the Caribbean, and Australia combined. I hope I've made my point. I think I'm going to go on. And 
And thus I saw the horses in the vision. Those who sat on them had breastplates of fiery red, hyacinth blue, and sulfur yellow. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and brimstone. What you're talking about here is what happened under the sixth trumpet. That is, what came to Islam? The power of gunpowder. Was this class supposed to end two minutes ago? Okay, in a minute. So let me summarize what's happening here. The yellow and the blue and the red are all a reference to what those early guns looked like. Did you realize that gunpowder was produced by a Christian man? I take back what I just said. Gunpowder was produced in the Far East. What we're talking about is artillery, that use of gunpowder. The use of gunpowder and artillery was invented by a Christian man, and he brought it to the Holy Roman Empire, that is the Catholic powers of Europe, and offered to build for them weapons with this. And they refused to hire him. They'd never heard of any such thing. So he went to the Muslims, and they paid him very handsomely. And it was by the use of a cannon that Constantinople fell. It was considered to be a, a fortress that could never be taken down. But a cannon was built that was so huge. You all can't picture, I can't hardly picture. I remember it in my mind, I got the idea that the objects that was hurling were brass balls that weighed more than cars from a distance of something like a quarter mile. And what would those do to brick, I mean, to, to rock and brick walls? It didn't take but a few days to break through. Anyway, so we introduced this with woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the world by reason of the trumpet story yet to sound. Islam is a woe, gunpowder is a woe, and Islam with gunpowder together was the second woe, and maybe we'll be interested to find out how Islam with weapons together are part of the third. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I want to thank you for containing that apostasy. I ask that you would teach us how to use tact and skill to reach the sincere persons among Islam. We need you to be our teacher, and we ask for that gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.